everyone welcome to the vocal revolution uh we are here talking as always about how voice can change our world personally and collectively and i'm really really delighted to welcome you all thank you so much for tuning in and a huge welcome to my special guest naveen Ulls, who we're going to have an extraordinary conversation today with about the inclusive voice Nav has established himself as an amazingly inspirational vocal leader and animator. He's got 36 years of experience in music, including 26 years working with singing groups in all sorts of sectors, including senior management, well-being, prisons with people experiencing homelessness and, and asylum seekers and also young people. His choirs, which include the London International Gospel Choir, which is 150 strong, have toured with the likes of Take That and Lulu. They've performed for Prince Charles and welcomed the guests for Michelle Obama's UK book launch. And his amazing commitment to social justice, inclusion and quality has led him to be invited on to, to advise the Association of British Choral Directors and Hal Leonard Europe on their equality, diversity and inclusion policies. So it's really important that we're having this uh, conversation this week because this week marks the anniversary of George Floyd's murder, which sparked the largest civil rights movement uh, spanning all states of the US and overseas. 60 countries worldwide. There's also a very uh, potent situation at the moment happening with choirs in the UK, which we'll be discussing and which NAV is at the centre of campaigning about. Um, it has always been the case, sadly, that throughout history, the voices of certain sectors have been excluded, have been silenced and have been misrepresented. So we're here to talk about how we can use particularly the power of voice and singing to make our communities more inclusive, more welcoming and more representative that we are a global community. So thank you so much now for joining me today and uh, being part of the Vocal Revolution. Okay, it's, it's such a an exciting thing to get to spend actual time together and talk. We we keep running into each other at events and in planning for events, but we you know it's it's almost a luxury to have time to just chat, isn't it? And that, you know, but you know, chat with purpose about what we're both excited and passionate about. So thank you for you know arranging to make time to make this happen and and for running this amazing series. I've I've watched a few of the episodes and. Um, such great speakers who all have such a deep seated passion for people and that you know so exciting to see but um you know i all this week i'm i'm trying to stay in the frame of mind and the conversations that are isn't singing so good because we're so busy right now in the conversations of we need to now do this and we need to go and leverage this and we need to engage that and we need to communicate this. And yet, and it's just, I'm just trying to draw myself back to isn't singing so good. And so yesterday was um, just an odd experience because I've never been a great singer. I'm not, you know, I was the instrumentalist who's landed up doing this and um, you know, and we all know instrumentalists don't tend to sing so much um, and they should, they really should listen to the instrumentalists. We should, it's such a great place to find our inner voice but um so I've always been scared of that and then I didn't think I could ever really sing that well and then um 
sight singing, you've got to be joking. So then yesterday I landed up standing between my new boss and um, a colleague, both of whom are phenomenal singers, um, with an amazing pianist behind us doing a piece by Ola Yellow, The Rose. Um, and there's me trying to sight sing the bass part. But luckily... I got out of this one because I know the piece really well and I love listening to it and I, I have it, you know, quite frequently in my ears. So I knew exactly where the, you know, the harmonic progressions were going and the sound was going. And luckily the bass part's <laughs> rock solid simple. So I was like, oh great, C, D, E, D, C, D, E, D, C, D, E. Fantastic. Drop down to an A, B, E, few. Um, so it's just like, um, but anyway, but, you know, that, so that was a bit terrifying, but also really just gorgeous. Just standing in a room and singing and enjoying it and being really present in the sound with a beautiful Dan Moriyama on the piano behind us. I mean, he's an amazing pianist. So that was lovely. But yeah, so I'm just trying to remind myself this week, even just for yourself, taking the time for yourself, whilst you're in the middle of fighting for all these other things, to just love the sound of things. So nice. Yes. And that, that, it's that beauty, isn't it, that inspires... Mm -hmm because it's beauty that inspires change as much as our commitment to our values, but beauty being maybe one of our values as well. The, and the sense of what we can create and the sense of ha that amazing uplift that people get as well when we create something beautiful together and how that moves us to in many, many ways on many, many levels. So um, I started playing the piano when I was six um, and um there's an, an Asian need to have a child that's good at everything and does everything. So, you know, there was a lot of pressure at home to do this thing and be good at it, like good at school, good at this, good at that, whatever. Um, and, you know, when you have furiously academic parents who have vast academic backgrounds, they want to progress everything going forward like that. And um, so they have this understanding that you will be excellent at that. And then you will go to the university, be excellent at that. The many, many times they did. Um, so there was always this, but that's a normal Asian family thing. So um, I got to playing piano. Um, and by the time I got to 10, um, we'll, we'll discuss the, the, the ways that, you know, uh, behavior was managed by my parenting um, another time. Um, but then by the time I got to I was 10, I realized, oh, I could do this thing and these other kids can. So as a as the wrong color kid growing up in a country at a time when there were barely any other kind of people of color, um, uh, having also been very small and the kid that was born crippled, so spent a year in a wheelchair, all this kind of nonsense, this this 10-year-old needed validation in any kind of form it could find. Um, and so could you know perform on these stages and went around and doing concerts and stuff. And this is all very exciting. And then I auditioned and I went to the music school, but that was purely through the grace of some amazing music teachers who invested a whole summer in kind of getting me to the stage of readiness for an audition to a music school. And then I went to, you know, I got in by the skin of my teeth and I was then a music school specialist as a boarding child, um, you know, practicing eight hours a day on a piano for most of my teens. And I, that's when I started to understand what music was and I fell in love with it. But realistically what actually happened was I started to fall in love with the ability and the action of playing music, the actual musicianship, the music itself was still the thing that evaded me for a while. Um, and then when I was in my early 20s, I was standing in a pub. Um, so I grew up in Edinburgh, in Scotland, um, mm -hmm. Aberdeen, Edinburgh, India. So I bounced around a lot, did nine different schools on the way up. Um, and I, um, day school, boarding school, private school, public school, like I've done them all. Um, and I um, 
so I grew up in Edinburgh. It was home by this point. I'd made it my home for myself. Um, and um, I was in this pub. And that's because everybody, when I was growing up, would always be like, oh, you're the musician, so you should come and hear my friends. They're in a really amazing band. And I'd always be like, okay. Um, so then I'd go along and I'd hear this thing. And from that perspective of the child who's at a, an elite specialist music school who, you know, I spent uh, 1.2 hours a day practicing for two weeks straight on one descending passage in a listitude. And that was the only time that my piano teacher at that time, who is absolutely lovely as a person and a phenomenal human, um, but that was the only time that he applauded for my work in terms of practice and, and development. But that's because that's the level of detail that we were all kind of striving for, the perfect passages of semiquavers over thousands of notes, you know, at ridiculous rates and doubles sometimes. You know, so I'm standing in this pub listening to this band and <laughs> there were lots of thoughts going through my head. Guy can't sing. Bass, this is a bit boring. Drummer's not keeping time. Guitar's not in tune. But then what hit me really hard that night, which is why it's never gone away. It's always, it's one of my foundling like experiences that evolved me was there were a hundred people in the pub bouncing around, having a mad time. They were having an amazing time and the band were having an amazing time. And there was this communication and this energy going on in that space and they all belonged to it. It made sense to everybody there and it was an amazing time. It, the room was bouncing. I mean, I, I mean, physically, really, actually, just everything was bouncing. Apart from this one snobbish fool in the corner. Um, and at that point, I realized what music actually is and what it should do and can do for people. That was the first stage of my understanding. And I cha everything changed in my head at that point. Um, so that was good. And then... Um, scroll on 15 or so years and I start to really see the healing power of getting people together the the change the life change the meaningfulness the you know the depth of your identity that is affected by this core habit that you have being utilized together changed evolved moved challenged um and how emotionally connected it all is and therefore how emotive you can be in doing so and the the amount of baggage that you can offload the amount of fear or can you know containment or frustration that you can vent that you know and i didn't get it until a lot later and then when i started to see you know i then realized i could get rid of this baggage i'd been carrying around for a long time of oh i failed this condition i didn't go to university i didn't become a doctor I went to university a few times, um, but none of them very successful because I was too busy doing shows. Um, but then, um, you know, I, I didn't become a doctor and I didn't, I'm not healing people every day. And then I thought, well, I'm not healing one person at a time in that level of clinical health, but I can get in a room with 30 people at one time. And when they leave the room, they feel better. They feel rehumanized. Mm. I can get in a room with 300 people and do the same thing. Let's go. You know, and I just got really excited by all of this. And it's just, a, and it is amazing. It's just so, but it's also so crazy because intrinsically, don't tell anyone this, but intrinsically, I'm a really shy, quiet child. Like I, that's what I need. And that's what I do. Um, 
and the 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 nav persona that's been built up that becomes this you know stands in front of however many people and let's do it um and has this kind of assumption um but i i realized i was taught an idea um a few years ago which really helped move me along so for people who are watching it as music teachers and leaders we all have that kind of fear pre-event or engagement and we have that sense of Oh my, oh my gosh, am I going to be good enough? Good enough? The imposter syndrome, all those things. Um, and this this really released me from a lot of that, um, which was that I don't need to worry about that because the music is there. The music mm-hmm. will do the teaching, the music. As you just said in, a, in part of our conversation, um, if it makes the edit, um, was that thing where you, you said that music is so inspirational music is so uh connective the force of it is tangible and and change happens because of the inspiration of the beauty of the music Mm. and what people kind of made clear to me was the whether it's mozart and that's what you think is the most gorgeous thing in the world or it's you know uh a song from Jordan or it's a song from Cameroon or it's a gospel number, whatever it is, the music and the beauty and the power in it is already there. All you have to do is kind of point at it. Mm. So and the music will do the teaching, the music will communicate, the music will bring the, the emotion. So that really released me because then I could just get into the room and do the job of, of, of pointing at it. And did you see this bit? And did you see this bit? And do you see how that bit connects that bit? And now you see, because you've done that, but you can now do this and this and this. So now can we do the whole thing? You know, and it, so my, my excitement and my energy about music in a room now is so much easier for me to excuse. I'm not crazy. I'm just so enthusiastic that we get to the explosively fun music moment and the next one and then the next one. And then, you know, and then do we really have to go home? Can we just go somewhere else and just keep doing it? You know, just more. Yeah. I mean, I know you have work tomorrow, but like, why don't we just keep singing? (laughs) Fantastic. Wow. Thank you, Nav, just for explaining that. And I totally relate to so many aspects of what you've just shared with us, which is firstly, the the capacity of and the excitement of realising that change can happen in a room of people singing and just how transformative that can be for ourselves personally and the poignancy in your own journey of, of finding yourself through music despite feeling excluded and perhaps, um, mm. you know, yeah, yourself and, and having to face your own challenges so that music found you and then you found this wider expression of it than your initial introduction into what sounds like a very disciplined but amazing that you had that extraordinary immersion into music because it's so rich isn't it and I think that's the amazing thing about music is whatever form as you were saying whether it's Mozart that floats our boat or whoever whatever type of music whatever we immerse ourselves in or indeed if we're just jumping around to a band you know this is all however we choose it will take us on that journey especially if we really get get really let ourselves get right into it and I'm sure you've seen that, that it's it's that process of letting ourselves get into it, as it were, that and giving people permission, which seems to be a theme that comes up a lot over and over again, actually, in these podcasts, but allowing people to have permission 
and to, to feel that they can go on that journey with music, that it is safe for them. And then, of course, that being absolutely essential that if they're going to have that experience in a room with people, that they need to feel included and welcomed and that it's safe for them to go on that journey and express their voice. Because you say this is this thing we have inside of us is deeply personal and we can have, you know, feelings about and fears about expressing it. So thank you for sharing the richness of your journey and and what I'm sure you've seen billions of stories in your work but um what I love doing on this podcast is celebrating as you say just the house good singing is which is where we started but what are some of your favorite stories that you've seen of of singing around social justice around equality around those things that you're so powerfully committed to um can I frame into that question only because something yes, you just please. was really um it's in my head now and I, and I want to talk about it just that if we're talking about inclusivity I always find this I'm sorry I'm going to say it but I find it slightly comedic this whole diversity and inclusion thing because inherent in diversity and inclusion is that's different and mm. I need to make it fit into mine Yes, yes, yes. So when you say inclusion, why do I need to say that? You're mm. in the room. Yes. So if you're in the room, I don't care what you look like or how you got here, like if you walked in or you rolled in on your wheels, um, I don't, that, why does any of that make any difference? Like, I don't have to talk about inclusion. Mm. I'm a human, you're a human, and we're in the time space together. Mm. What? What other justification do I need here? Um, and I always find these debates like, here's tips and tricks and methods uh, that you can, you know, increase your diversity or, or, or make inclusion more a thing. Are you kidding? Like, what you're talking about right now is the fact that you can't help but other some other human, and therefore you need to find to, a way to master yourself. And my 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 favorite story, and and I get maybe kind of angry about that. So let me let let me move away from that dark space. Um, but my favorite thought process around this is, and somebody once said this to me, and I was trying to remember the other day who said it, and I cannot. When you throw a ball into a room with a bunch of kids, the game just evolves. The kids just start to play. And as you start to play with them, woe betide any adult who's brave enough to do that, um, as you start to play with them, you start to understand that the rules are being created. They just grow. The kids know. Oh, no, you don't do that. Oh, no, you have to do that. Okay, this is how we win this thing. That's what you do. And what there is nowhere in the world where you would throw the ball into the room and the kids would run up, put the ball in the middle, sit down in a circle around the ball and start discussing what the game could look like and how it's going to work. And they're setting up all the rules. And once they've agreed them, then getting up and starting to play with the ball. Are you mad? That doesn't happen. And it's And every time you land up in the kind of the inclusion diversity conversations, you land up in this place where just look at children and the way that they behave. There is no hatred. They have to be taught to hate. And I'm like, and you have to be taught to be an ass because what that, that, and that it goes, it is absolutely true. The playfulness of the child gets beaten out of us as we learn to, and we're trained to conform with society. And mm -hmm. increasingly as that happens, we compartmentalize and compartmentalize and, and um, you know, with whatever kind of, 
structure you get, you're institutionalized in some way into whichever culture and you land up with these boxes. And therefore now you need to figure out how to allow somebody else into your box. Boom. And all of that just makes me um, mad because Mm -hmm. I'm just like, people talk about the university universality of the language of music. And I'm like, no, that's not true. Sound is universal. Music is a cultural construct you need to figure out how to get out of your own way so you can enjoy sound and stop forcing your cultural constructs of music on top of it because those become inherently exclusive and as try as hard as you want you're not going to sidestep a natural sense of uh identity that comes with that sound uh, that comes with that music so you need to go back to the sound and be inherent and and so one of the things now don't let tom um, uh, hear this bit too much um, but one of the I've had these conversations with cor- corporate organizations that I've done workshops with and um, after the workshop so I, I sell them the product before then we do the workshop and after the workshop you know the people are raving about it and and they're always like that was really good and, you know it really cheap so the goal is always find your voice identify yourself as a person, enable yourself to feel stronger as a person because you can use your voice to advocate for people, to advocate for yourself, to uh, seek justice on, on things, just, you know, to be present in the world and do what you want to and feel more empowered to do so. That is important for everybody. So this is the purpose of the workshop. It's a creative workshop that helps you find yourself. So you could do poetry writing or, you know, or, or you could do, um, you know, and this is the bit where I was like, don't let Tom listen. You can do African drumming and stuff. But every time I manage to say to the people, well, here's the reality. What happens is you can go into that room, the drums are set up in a circle, um, and you can sit down and you can start drumming. And it's exciting and it's challenging. I mean, it's an experience for sure. And you're surrounded in the sound. That's exciting. And that's all great. And you, you go through the personal journey of knowing that you're being judged for your ability by the group on your ability to hit this thing. But then when you go back to your role in your organization, your role isn't about hitting things. So that's okay. The level of judgment you contain on the hitting the thing is, is, is real. And at the time you feel it and you go through those internal kind of battles, fine. And then when the whole experience is done and you've enjoyed it, it's been great. And it's a good memory. It does stay with you guys. You put the drum down and you walk out the room and the judgment, both on your ability to hit something and your ability to learn and grow and, and do something new or challenge yourself. All those things that are about judgment of you and therefore your, your ability to move forward and have that sense of value and worth, they stay with the drum. The difference in the vocal workshop is it's your identity. It's how you identify yourself. It's your assumption of who you are and the box that is you that just got challenged. Mm. It's your sense of everything that you think is, this is how the world works. I walk like this. I stand like this. I sound like this. I am limited in by the way I sound to do this and this and this. And as you pointed out earlier, you know, people have cultural value judgments around um, all of those things. Um, and culture might have told them they can or can't sing. And sorry, this is relating to the bit where you said, um, you know, music has 
this history of ideals. And I would argue that Western uh, and, you know, broad spectrum educational music, but Western society and culture over hundreds of years in Europe has built this idea of a line between performer and audience and never shall they cross. Music evolves through the jazzes in the Americas and that changes the culture of that. So you're now allowed to applaud during and, and, and enthusiastically show your appreciation for the soloist in the, in the jazz solo. And in other cultures, as per um, Daniel Levitin's book, um, this is where I got that direct piece of information, um, but everybody said it. In other cultures and, and other languages in the world, there are no separate words for sing, dance, celebrate. It's one concept. And how would you not do all of those things together? Are you broken? Um, so, you know, in all of that, the workshops, the vocal workshop goes right to that core of you learned the best and the most when you were a child and you were playful. And your sense of identity is now being boxed in. And then you turn up in this room and what I love doing is reaching into that box and going, nope, get out. Let's go and play. And when we go and play, we're going to just be stupid. So for, for a while, we're just going to spend some time slapping ourselves in the face, running around the room, doing stupid things, which you apparently don't think you have the permission to do anymore because you're a grown-up adult and you're very serious as a person and you've earned the right to be treated with respect. Um, very good for you. Now let's go and play. So then, you know, once and then once we play and once we hit that place where, you know, that is normal, then everything else becomes normal. Oh, well, if I can play that game, then I can play this game. Oh, and if this game involves sound, okay, great. Okay, but now we have to make sound together, but you have to go over there and you have to... And then we're singing and then we're doing music and then we're making music. So my, my corporate challenge to anybody watching this is book me, turn me up in your office. I will take all of your office as a team. And within two and a half hours, they won't see this coming. We won't tell them it's going to happen. But I guarantee in two and a half hours, we're going to run outside somewhere, find some random place, flash mob it, hotel reception, conference center reception, cafe in the conference center. I don't really care. And we're going to run back into the room and giggle about it a whole bunch and feel like we were rock stars. It's so easy to do if you give yourself permission. And so I love that expression. And I, I fully believe and I, I am fully committed to the game that goes behind giving you permission. But getting you out of your own way in order for you to allow yourself to give yourself that permission. There, there are steps to build into that. And then once you've done that, then you have this capacity to now go and play. And now that you've found that you could reevaluate your own sound do you not have permission to now go and reevaluate how much progression could i make in this organization what could i do what change could i affect what else am i allowed to achieve now if my own voice wasn't something i didn't understood i could use it more powerfully huh so this is why i always sit down with the, with the people in the debrief afterwards and i say this is why this is why this is so successful as a workshop for you. And this is why people are still talking about it. This is why now at every company meet you have, they randomly want to sing a song together or they sing songs from the workshop day because it taught them to fall in love with themselves again. And so this whole inclusion and diversity conversation, it just, it's just, I'm sorry. I, the phrase I have in my head right now is so childish, but it's just so barf. I'm just like, oh, seriously, you know, stop making yourself seem so much more important than you are just enjoy the fact that you're human and it's fun and we can play together and this i mean this painfully comes from the kid who went through nine different schools i don't i don't have time to wait till we can figure out if we can be friends 
I might be moving tomorrow. You might be moving tomorrow. I might not be here tomorrow. You might not be here tomorrow. So where I'm sitting right now, you're my best friend. Shall we, shall we dismiss the rubbish? Just get on with it. Like we can play right now. We could build that thing right now. We could go and, um, you know, create some mischief right now. Mm-hmm. We could jump on there. So, you know, uh, and that's, that's the personal motivation of why I go into a room and I'm just like, I don't, I'm not scared of figuring out how to get, you know, playing with the choir. And, and these are all funny things for the kid who just said, I am nervous and quiet as a person. But so this all goes back to the sense of this inclusion thing. But that's because my fundamental belief is everybody and so right at the core of it, and I loved the, your, uh, your interview on laughing. Um, I'm not sure about laughing yoga, I'll be honest, um, mainly because uh, there are many people in India who believe the, the idea of yoga and its kind of religious contextual kind of practice has been somewhat joker mystified by kind of, you know, hot yoga, mama yoga, this yoga, that yoga, whatever, and, and kind of an industry, $6 billion a year industry in, in yoga not the conversation for now but the point being that um you know i love though that conversation and that inherent need to laugh that is magical and really really powerful and you absolutely want to do that in every room because as soon as people laugh a bunch of the other stuff goes away the boundaries go away the shoulders come down and their sense of safety increases with every time they laugh at something they're better so if you're if you're warm up your engagement activities your icebreakers whatever you want to call them as you're on the way into your room, if you can get people to that place where they're laughing together, you're you're a hundred percent on the journey towards getting them to know that they're safe and they are bonded, and those people are their allies, and they can move forward together to do whatever they need to do next. Absolutely, yeah. and it come, that comes back to what you something critical. You made a key distinction between sound and the cultural construct of of our, our of music and laughter being a universal sound inside of us you know that doesn't have constructs on it because it is just laughter and of course that doesn't mean it can't be then used in constructed ways but the actual sound of it is inherently a sound that we can all share so I think that's why laughter is one of those sounds including crying and many other sounds that you know that um you know, I've been researching things like infant-directed speech, and there are studies that show that um, infant-directed speech, which is just like that normal baby talk we all do when we talk to, which is something else you touched on saying, you know, this is at the beginning of our lives. We all learn through like baby talk, and it, a lot of it is sung-spoken. It's not um, this kind of level, of what I'm always saying is this bandwidth of adult speech, which is often here, whereas baby speech is like everywhere, every possible sound, every possible pitch. And that's how we, when we talk to, even as adults, we go into talking in a baby way to the baby. <laughs> um, because, you know, that's, and that has been shown to be universal, that babies being baby talked to by people from different cultures will still show the same responses to the core emotions being expressed to them, despite mm. whatever language the baby talk is. And I think that, for me, again, brings us back to this sense of sound being you know these core sounds at the sense of us at the core of us and when we get back to that and we reclaim as you say the beauty and fall in love with the beauty of our voices the beauty of our core sounds the beauty of that 
then yeah as you say well what's the conversation about am I included well of course because you're a human being and everybody is included and that's that's it you know we all have a voice we all have and even I've seen people who uh, labeled you know labeled as not being able to hear not being able to see not being able to speak and still having profound relationships with sound um, and profound relationships with music and so I have seen without any shadow of a doubt that everyone relates to sound it's impossible not to actually and sound is built into the core of us into our heartbeat you know. Speaking of which there was one guy a taxi driver in Aberdeen just a few years ago and what are you up for? I'm doing a corporate workshop. Oh, okay. What's that on then? Then it's what I do. This is what. Oh. Hmm. And I was like, wait a second. Not, mm, this is amazing. What are you talking about? So we got into the, you know, I never let any guy, especially men, I never let men off with this kind of idea that they can dismiss singing because they, they've been, they've been trained to, they've been, you know, culturally built to kind of, uh, that's a danger place. My voice was a danger place as I was formative, I was under, you know, no. So they don't want to go back near that trauma. And I, you know, I, so I'm loving right now that I'm, I've just started working with Cambiata boys voices, um, changing voice. Um, so specifically a targeted choir, two boys, 11 to 14. I could possibly help these guys gain confidence through that space. I'm so excited about this. Um, but this guy because I won't let any guy off with it. Um, I was like, yeah, but you know, I mean, you chose the piece of music you marched down the aisle to, right? You, the, you At your wedding. No. What song was it? Oh, I can't remember. Wait a second. But what about the piece of music that your daughter loved the most and you always sang to her? And I never sang to her. But um, I, uh, And the conversation just went on and on. This guy had absolutely no relationship with sound. He just mm. didn't care. And I was like, astounded. So this guy is stuck in my head and he's not going away. But he is the only person I have met in my life um, around everywhere that, that had this. And I was like, wow. And that, and that makes him pretty special an individual, you know, that's pretty special. But um, yeah, everybody, everybody has an innate relationship with, and they all pretend like they don't. And I'm like, really? When you walked up to me, you took your earphone buds out. And, you know, the first thing you do when you get is, you know, and when you want to celebrate, where did you go? Oh, Ibiza to a club. All right, there you go then. So, you know, it's not like dance and music didn't have anything to do with that. And you pick your wedding thing and you first dance and, you know, you remember your, you know, your first school dance and you remember the, the first date with the girl. You know, all of these strings are huge for you. And anyway, anyway. Yeah, yeah. So what are your... You know, there there are there can be these no's. There are a lot of no's sometimes. And as you say, there can be a lot of culturally constructed or just personally constructed no's because of trauma, because of X, Y and Z layers that get on top of us. Um, why we might be saying no to no, I'm not musical. No, I can't sing. No, I can't. This, da, 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 this kind of uh, uh, these these defenses that we've evolved, let's say, or in protection because we got hurt. And what are your top tips for people perhaps letting go into, you know, you mentioned icebreakers, we've mentioned laughing, but what are some of your favorite things to do with people to give them that permission or things that people might be able to do themselves to say, to say yes to their voice, to say yes to really the, the beauty that we've been talking about really. Oh gosh, I better sound sage and clever at this point. <laughs> it's not obligatory. <laughs> but- 
Um, so many thoughts in my head. Okay, so um, as a guy who didn't like singing, wasn't confident at it, didn't, I just had to get over it, right? So I actually just spent some time literally exploring how stupid I could be with sound. So I spent a bunch of time, and I mean months, like I just, as I was wandering around the house doing stuff or, or, or you know, dishes, yay, um, I would just go, ah, now, you know, what are you doing? But I would then move around pitches and whatever, just because what I was trying to do was try and find where my voice sounds centered around who I, I felt like I, and, you know, eventually, once you discover what your sound, your sound is like when it's daft, and when it's um, not how you like it, and those two things are the same, then you find a place where you're like, ah, well, this is good. You know, it's not daft and it's not, I don't like it. Oh, okay. And that, you know, why don't you do that? You pick your clothes really carefully. You pick your hairstyle and your identity really carefully. You, you're careful what you socially chain uh, share online about which books you read and which tv shows um you only go to certain places you don't buy coffee in starbucks anymore because you don't like how they do so how come you don't choose your sound have some fun find some sound that um and then the thing that i always say to people is well if you can shout to save some kid running across the road and there's a bus coming then you can sing you know you can make that kind of noise no, you didn't have to understand physically in your head, which muscles am I going to change? And what am I going to do that will project my noise louder and across the street? If you're standing at one end of the square and your friend is at the other end of the square, or you're on one platform in the station, and your friend's on the other platform, you know how to, you'll just automatically engage sound to get to them. So if you can do that, if you can shift sound control so, so powerfully. And then the, the other thing I always used to say to people, and this was my, like my street pitch for guys to come singing was, so this is getting away from the very base barriers of, oh, I can't, I don't have permission to. Um, okay, back in the days, when you used to have a phone that you picked up and went, hello, um, back in those days, how long would it take before the voice on the other side would be clear to you as one of your family or your spouse or your other half, one of your kids? How long? And then how long before you know if there's a problem or they're in a good mood or, or, or something's exciting, or some, but something's happened. How long before you can sense the mood they're in? And again, it's, you know, it's syllables before you figure out it's your mom. It's maybe a few more syllables, but some levels, and it could be just one syllable before you go, mm, something's up. That, that was the sob sound. That was the, you know, bam. So if you can decode that, then you can encode it. Because you know when you're frustrated, you can tell people and you can show them. So if you can do those two things, how can you not sing? Like, it's just the capacity to change coloring and shaping and, and send a message. So if you can do it with such adept control in all these different environments, how do I speak in a meeting? How do I speak with my sibling? How do I speak with my spouse when I'm in trouble? How do I speak with, you know, you know all these things. So get away from the idea that you can't because you absolutely can. It's just you don't. How good are you at horseback archery? Not so good? Well, maybe that's because you don't spend any time sitting on a horse trying to shoot an apple off a tree from a distance behind you, you know, as the horse is galloping. That sounds hard to do. It's, it is hard to do. But you, if you spend time doing it, you would get better at it. 
how much time do you spend singing purposefully? Not just like you didn't notice you were doing it or because the football game happened or some channel or a happy birthday in the office, but how long? Like just for a few minutes, why not? Just sing along with the song on the TV. I dare you. Um, so they're the base levels of like, let's get them past the nonsense, which is th- those things. Um, and then there's the, once you're in the room, getting permission to just make silly noise. So at the beginning of my kind of sessions, there'll be all these kind of exercises where you just do stupid things that make you remember to laugh at the fact that you can't do stupid things. Um, so just, should we, do, should we do an example? Just like a simple, simple silly example. So um, there's, I, I have this thing, you're a singer. So everybody else, I would normally do this in little steps, right? But Katie's like amazing. So if I go, dum, dum, da, 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 dum, dum, da, da. Dum dum da 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 dum dum da da. Dum dum da 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 dum dum da da da. Dum dum da 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 dum dum da da da. I've gone for some crazy high key today. I don't know why. Dum dum da 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 dum dum. Dum dum da 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 dum dum dum. Dum getting sing it together katie's amazing so she just did that like that and i would take a few more steps to get the room to it and i would never go near this at the very beginning of my corporate workshop there's a whole bunch of stages to get to here so when i get to here i have a very carefully mapped out route by the way um um like a 47 minute warm up, and I, I totally, you know, there's a pathway and I know, and I'm taking them through little bricks that I, I knock out of the way so I can get them to a certain place. They've done that, right? So level one is just singing it. And then level two is like really simple physicalizations that go with it to play this game. Level four though is this, tap your thighs. As you're watching, tap your thighs, right? Now, grab your nose and your ear like this, crossing your arms. So for anybody who's listening, what I've just done is I've tapped my thighs. Now I've reached up and I've grabbed my nose with one hand and I've crossed my arms in front of my face and grabbed my ear with the other hand. So I've got my nose and my ear with my arms crossed, right? Now go back and tap your thighs again. Now grab your nose and your other ear. Crazy. Rather one. <laughs> this is where my dyspraxia comes in. <laughs> yeah, and then tap your thighs. Yeah. And then go the other way. Yeah. The one, that one. Yeah. And then tap your thighs and go the other way. So then what we have to yeah. do is this. We have to go dum, dum, da, 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 thighs, face, thighs, face, a dum, dum, da, 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 da. <laughs> That's awesome. Da, da, da. So at that point, people start to understand that apparently they don't know where their nose is. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's totally bonkers. Yeah, so I'm totally messing that up. Well, their arms. Yeah. And they can't help but laugh. But also they land up slapping themselves in the face, grabbing yeah. bits, other bits of their face. <laughs> no, I don't understand. Well, how come, I mean, how come both of my hands have now gone into my mouth? I don't really get it. And, and <laughs> what's then happening is they're watching around the room and watching other people slap themselves in the face and everybody's laughing about it. Yeah, but yeah. We have made it okay to be completely ridiculous in this space together. Mm. And once you've been completely ridiculous and I've removed any, any iota of self-worth you thought you had... Um, <laughs> then you have total permission to go anywhere else next because now everything's okay. Everything's on the table. We put it all on the table now. Let's go. Um, And so, you know, basically it's Delta Force training, SAS training, but in a nice way and without guns. (laughs) Um, And so it's deconstructing all this nonsense to get you back to the playful you and the silly you that's okay, that was allowed at one point. Yeah. And then, you know, and then, and then, allowing you to reconnect with yourself 
now that you've given yourself permission. I'm making air um, inverted commas for the people listening on podcasts. Um, air, <laughs> you know, now you've given yourself now you could give yourself permission, and we're not there yet. So there's still more steps to bit by bit give people the the groundwork where they can. And the thing I love about corporate and community sound together, I say corporate like I was going to say corporate workshops, but just any choir rehearsal, any group of people, any room of singers together is if you can do it with other people. And here's the thing. And so this is the next, you know, as you asked, what are your kind of tricks and involvement things? The next thing that's really powerful is doing things together. Um, you need permission for yourself, but it's so great when somebody else validates that with you and or, you know, praises you or supports you for doing it and how much more fun when you're all slapping yourself in the face together to do it together and laugh at each other but have permission to do that you know you're not mocking the person anymore you're enjoying the silliness of the whole thing so then what happens is there i I take people through a couple steps of doing activities that they land up doing together um but not by choice and not through planning okay why don't you set yourself up in groups of threes there's no time for that because they won't it'll take forever and there's politics and nonsense and history and blah blah so let's do not bother so in the sound there's a game and they run around and having to do this they instinct they land up meeting people that they know well they don't know so well that they land up meeting another animal in context and the two animals read each other and play and then they move on to the next animal and that's okay that's enough but that level of interaction and, and engagement and play again, just keeps building this idea that we can do this. Everybody does this. Okay, they do it. I do it. Actually, they're just as bad and we're all learning and it's okay. And it's this continuous building towards a sense of it's okay. We can all do this. Mm. It's normal. It's fine. And it's, that I say normal? It's normal. So let's just do it. Um, and it's not, it's not going to hurt anybody. It's not, you know, you're not, nobody's going to bleed. For it. Yeah, you could run into a chair and fall over. Yeah, fine. <laughs> Um, you know, but that's going to happen. But so these are these are some of the things that are always in me and and are the driving forces behind anything. So whenever I'm in a room and I watch other musicians do something, or I'm in a in a choir rehearsal or watching any event, I'm I'm hawking, I'm eyes on the leader the whole time. But I'm reading the room to see what what little trick did that person have or use that had universal currency. It just somehow got to everybody. Universal currencies, maybe. I used to I used to talk about it, and I do talk about it as like the golden key. And there are some things that are just intrinsic. So when we go back to this, the baby talk thing you were talking about, the child brain doesn't have any other information. All it does is it's deciphering the whole time. So when it hears the signals, it deciphers the signals, and it doesn't need any more. So what whatever language makes no difference. But the emotion, the emotive force behind the sound communicates. And so I think that there are some things like when the baby smiles, you almost can't help yourself. You have to smile back. When someone smiles, you almost can't help yourself. You have to smile back. When someone laughs, it starts to trigger a reaction. If someone yawns, you have to. All of these things, there are these universal connectors. And it's finding ways to engage with those so that I can actually trick you past, again, it's just another set of kind of manipulations, if you want to call them that. But it's another set of ways to help people get past their boundaries and past the boundaries, get themselves out of their own way to give themselves permission. So, yeah. Yeah, brilliant. Strong views on all of these things. But it's also because I've lived that have to change, have to read. And if people know about the concept of third culture kids, I think it's another layer of, of the understanding of this. So you can have a, a, a kid 
who moves from one town to another town in your country, um, and they understand what change costs them. Then they move to another town. Now they're starting to learn how to behave in change. And then they move to another town. Parents are oil people or military people or diplomats or whatever. And now, you know, so there's, there's that level of understanding of need for change. And therefore, that level of empathy and that level of learning to read new spaces, read new people and connectively, culturally fit. But then there's this concept of third culture kids. So have you discussed this on with any of the other people on the show yet? No, no, please. Yeah. Fine. So there's this idea that let's say you're, and it's not an idea, there's, a, there's now a growing kind of group of science around it. You have your home culture, your direct parental internal home culture. Now, your parents have a culture, so they imbue that to you. You have your home culture. Let's say that before the age of 18, in your formative years, your parents move everybody wholesale to another country, another place in the world, another part of the world, where the host culture is completely different. Mm. Host culture now being the culture of the, the space around and outside your house. So what happens to this formative person, this child, is that they have their home culture, they step out the door, and they have to now read a host culture, understand it, organize it, fit with it, mm-hmm. adapt. And then when they go home, they have to kind of flip back into home culture, organize, adapt, and whatever. So what then happens is this child develops this third culture, their own hybrid version of understanding and reading both. But what they also then learn is adaptability. They learn to read subtle differences in behavior patterns, in expectations, in in cultural approach, all of these things, which are all intrinsically based around language and behavior pattern, all of that stuff. So third culture kids then, um, you know, back in the kind of 70s, 80s and 90s, where my international migration wasn't so big and wasn't so... Um, prevalent or so easy to do you would you know you talk about military brats and diplomat kids and diplomat brats and um you know you talk about missionary kids and and you know people who you know oh yeah my parents were in oil or the aviation industry so they were in like the far east or something and i grew up there or i was born there and then i moved back here there's a huge bunch of stories about how through the 70s 80s 90s you know when then the big multinational is opening a new office in hong kong they're like ah get steve to go like for some reason he's like really good with everybody, like send him. And you find that Steve's a TCK and Steve goes and immediately walks him through and goes, oh yeah, cool. There's a China peoples. And he starts to operate in that room because he just gets some subtle differences. Now there, there were great examples in the textbook that I read about this, for instance, a, 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 a clinic in an African country. I'm, I'm so sorry. I don't remember from the example of the book from 20 years ago um what uh, the country was but um so africa biggest continent in the world 1.3 billion people 54 countries let's remember it's not one thing i get it i do i very much do um so in a clinic in that con- in that country in that specific context they this international doctor was then flown in um, to start working with the project and they were like please help us fix this every time we give them the prescriptions for the aids treatment that they need they walk out, bin the prescription, and don't do anything with it. We don't understand why. So this doctor just watched for a morning. And in the lunch break of the doctor whose room it was, they clocked it, went over, and moved the desk from one side of the room to the other side of the room. Just flipped the desk around, put it on, up against the other wall. And for the whole afternoon, the doctor then 
had the same appointments, filled out the same prescriptions, handed them to the people. They went out of the clinic, went straight to the pharmacy, filled out the prescriptions, and went home with the drugs. And the clinic were like, what happened? Why did you, how did you do that? And the doctor was like, well, where the doctor was sitting, he was at a desk writing talking to them to his left. He would then write the prescription with whichever hand he wrote with, it doesn't really matter. But then he would hand the prescription to the person sitting on his left instinctively with his left hand, because that's on his left-hand side. The person's over there, so I'm handing them the thing. Done. And in that culture, your left hand is your unclean hand. Anything given to you with your left hand, with a left hand, is of course not to be valued. It's not it has it's tainted. So it gets binned. So flipping the desk to the other side of the room, forced the doctor facing the wall on the other side, meant the patient was then sitting on the doctor's right, meant the doctor then filled out the prescription, handed the prescription to the people with his right hand. So they then got a thing of value, which they could accept and now do something with. So then they went to the pharmacy, filled out the prescription, off, went off. Bam. And I just, you know, at that point, it's those little reads that you need. So third culture kids, um, TCKs, TCKs, um, is, is what this, this whole thing is around. But on the flip side, you then have the slightly sad and dangerous side of all of this, which is that, and I don't, I don't mean slightly, I mean vastly sad. Mm-hmm. American family, another case study in the book, American family um, moved to Hong Kong. Girl drew, grew up in Hong Kong the entire time. She was very young when they went. She was like one or two or something. Um, so she lived her whole life in Hong Kong. 18, family makes a decision that she goes back to the US to do university. Goes back, doesn't feel comfortably fitting in, doesn't enjoy it. Three years, forces herself through university. Second she graduates, is on the plane back to Hong Kong. Home. So she goes to home. And then six months later, she's on a plane back to the US in tears, writing a letter to her parents because her home wasn't hers they wouldn't give her a job having graduated gone back to now find a job settled down in hong kong the jobs had to go to the chinese first that was the policies and it wasn't because they didn't like her it wasn't because she wasn't a strong enough candidate she was an american and everything about her own sense of identity was devalued because she wasn't given permission to be um so there's a you know, there is a dark flip side to this thing. And, and, in, and, you know, in, and in these little corners is where this inclusion and, and diversity conversation just makes me mad. I find it annoying. I find it remarkably short-sighted. I also find it really dismissive. But, you know, but, and, and then I don't get to have enough of these conversations where I get to find out more about how people who are resolving these issues or trying to find ways to combat these issues are, are succeeding. So I found my way, which is through sound. Mm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So when we appreciate what you're saying is um, there are these things that are like, we've got these cultural indicators, you know, like that was such a powerful example of the left and the right hand, yeah? And if you walked into that culture and you didn't know that, you wouldn't understand, right? So there are these constant cultural signals that if yeah being given out wherever we are aren't there that we have to navigate and those cultural signals are the same cultural signals you get when you walk into 
a choir rehearsal mm. where the scores are handed out. The conductor isn't greeting you. It's just like, okay, let's rehearse. Um, and then let's go to bar 23 and we go from there. Could I get the alto part? Boom. Okay. That didn't work. Um, guys, the, it was an F sharp. Should we go back and sing that again? All of the above are a series of cultural instructions and indications that you either do or don't belong and that you either do or don't have the capacity to feel valued in this room. And when, when people <laughs> then have these moments where they say, oh, but I want to make my choir feel more inclusive, right at the very base of your operation, you have to start looking at what your value of people is and how you frame everything about how you do what you do. Because if just handing... I, I live in London and it, was, it wasn't until I moved to London that I remembered that I was brown. I moved to London in 2002 and I wrote back to my parents and family and people at that time to just go, oh my God, they're all like brown and black. I grew up in Scotland. There's like, we were amazed on the Tuesday night hip hop club night that we used to go to in this one, in this one club. We were like, where do they find all these black people? Like, do they literally ship them in from, so why like, we walk around the streets of Edinburgh. I don't see this number of black people. Where are they all hiding? Anyway, so, it, you know, it's just the point that, you know, it, it's just the reality of, of population numbers and that's fine. There's nothing wrong in that. But when I got to London, the intensity of, of the multiculturalism was like pff, on another scale for me. I, you know, I was amazed. Anyway, so, you know, having got here, this is a vastly diverse environment. You can't help. I always used to kind of joke, oh, you know, if something was really far away, it was either in Azerbaijan or, you know, Kazakhstan. Those were my two kind of like joke countries that were like, I would use in, in terms of you know, normal context. Oh, that's really far away. Or that's like impossible. I never used Timbuktu. I, I didn't like the sound of it in my mouth. I like Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan. I think they sound cool. And then I moved to London and I meet people from Azerbaijan and Kazakhstan. It's no longer a fictional kind of faraway place. This person comes from there. And I can talk to them about it. Oh, all right. So now I don't have anywhere that's my joke fictional faraway place. Um, I really actually don't. It's, it's no point. It's London. Everybody's from everywhere else. And they've got it. So in this environment, you cannot stand in a room of singers and assume that everybody has to make eye contact with you. In some cultures, that's remarkably rude. You cannot assume that somebody's serious face is them not enjoying your session or not engaging with it. Maybe they're culturally set to want to develop well and work hard and show you that they're, you know, that's working. You know, and so you have to recontextualize everything about your expectations in order to come near this idea of inclusivity and diversity. And it's, there's no light edge to this stick. There's no quick way. There's, there's no kind of do this, then do this. Let me write your two page briefing sheet. You'll be fine. Mm -hmm. No, you've got to go right to the core of everything that you think you're comfortable with and everything you think you're willing to be playful about and figure out how you're going to let somebody else in to that box. Yeah. Wow. I love that. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Because that is, that is the, I love that you put play at the center of, <laughs> of inclusion 
and I love that also you put the value of of everyone in your room and yourself like that, that is also fundamental because those two things have that's what I'm hearing from you right at the core of this process and it is um it is as you said when you talked about reflecting on oh I didn't become a doctor but I came became somebody who changed people in rooms and I think that comes really from a sense of love and care for, and value of the people who are in that room with you so and as you say therefore not to make assumptions about those people try as much as we can to or to watch when we are making assumptions and and have that interrogation with self to say well why am I making that assumption and to and, but if I'm in the space of play myself that's easy I don't have to go through as you say a briefing paper because if I'm in a space of play and openness I will be open to whatever is presented to me and um and that thing about faces is something we talk about a lot in quiet. <laughs> you know, are we? Do we have our concentrating faces on? And uh, which I've learned, do not ever take the concentrating face personally <laughs> as a choir leader, because people will, when they're concentrating, they will have very varied, as you say, and those might be culturally uh, defined, you know, expressions as well. So um, yeah, not just not making those assumptions about people. Mm-hmm. They might be, but I actually, I, I get into that fight the whole time. Like, I'm, I'm up for that fight. But that, that's only because, um, again, it doesn't matter whether, and this comes back around on this. So culturally, you can put your muscles wherever you want to because that's deemed appropriate. Yeah. But physically, we know that if you are in a smile, laugh space, your muscles go to a certain place. Yeah. But also those are helpful for singing and mm. also those are helpful for making you feel good. So if we want to trick the lizard brain back the other way, if we want to cheat sheet the system, mm. you know, so when you talk about um, fight, flight, reflex and the defensiveness of people, all of the collapsed nature, so for people who are listening, I'm now collapsing my shoulders punching my back and going into that protective my hands are in front of my body to protect me you know that defensive mechanism triggers lots of other things science is now finding that what it also does is it it shuts down the communication between long-term and short-term memory it starts to uh because you you know i'm not enjoying this experience i want to get away from this long-term doesn't need it so the short-term doesn't even process it to the long-term because it's like we're never going to do this again Let's hope mm. we never need to do this again. So everything in your system starts to shut down in order mm. to get you ready for either flight or fight. Mm. Um, so if you trick the system the other way, if you program the body the other way, so if you put yourself in a positive, you know, go where you go in all the TED Talks that teach you about powerful body language, go where you go when the celebration happens. So, you know, hands in the air, you know, do all of that. What you then do is you trigger back to the brain and all of your systems that you must be happy, that you must be enjoying this. So let's switch on everything. So you're sitting in the accounting meeting and you hate math. Sit up, look totally happy about the whole thing the whole time, trick your brain into thinking you're totally happy about it, and your retention capacity goes up. So you will engage better with the numbers that are coming to you, even if you don't like them or care, 
but you will retain more of them and make the accountants feel like you love them more. And so that, you know, they will engage with you better. And actually the outcome is better, even if you still don't understand anything they said, but at least you remember it all and they feel valued, but you feel better about the whole space and you will engage better. So I do want, I always go for the fight with the smiley face during choir rehearsal, not just to make myself feel better because it looks like you're smiling at me, but actually for your memory to be engaged better. So the words stay better, the experience stays better. For your experiential memory, yeah, the whole thing to go away better, but also then your singing posture is better, yada, yada, yada. But then, yeah. so I do get into this because then I make it a playful thing. Again, it's all about play. I make it a playful thing about I love that you're working really hard and you, you want to convince me that you're working really hard, but um, you look like you hate your life. So, <laughs> and everybody and everything. so why don't we just go somewhere more fun? Um, so, you know, and I do do that because it is about these things for me and yeah. culture aside, the, the simple bio, biophysiology of it all means that, you know, we need to use the body to do the job that we need to get them to do. Yeah. do the stuff learn the stuff come back next week and then please can i not have to reteach this yes. so i mean there there is a level of 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 teacher strategist cold kind of calculation at the back end of this where i'm manipulating them into a place where i, I need them to don't tell my choirs i do this by the way <laughs> i think it might be a bit too late <laughs> I'm, I'm fully upfront and honest about all of this with yes. them. yeah they know that i'm doing this to them yes and you know i think people love my experience is, and I think it's the same, I think it's the same with all of us, myself, definitely, I love being tricked into <laughs> laughing and having a good time. I mean, what's, what's to feel, what's to feel defensive about that? And I may resist it still sometimes if I'm really in that, in that, in that much of a funk, but I still, there's still that part inside, you know, um, my mum used to say to us when we were like, in a funk um she'd say don't laugh whatever you do don't laugh and then of course you'd laugh because (laughs) (laughs) um so you know it's it's that there's there's a part of us that um is of course frightened and opened up uh, of opening up in play because we feel and we have to take the risk of exposing ourselves and sharing ourselves and sharing who we are but I found that the rewards of that are so much more than the you know, the, the, the costs of staying, as you say, contracted, hunched over, there's so many costs to that place, to the place of constriction, to the place, you know, whether it's the physical cost of you get shoulder ache, literally, um, or, you know, the emotional cost of not being able to engage with people in your life and, and share who you really are. Um, there are so many costs. So I think that's one of the reasons singing is so transformational because it enables us to open up into sharing ourselves and being who we are and being seen and being, being visible and then therefore a- available to play and available to relationship and available to creating something beautiful, which is where we started with beauty and, 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 you know, singing being good. Um, so Nav, you know, we've spoken for ages and, and, you know, um, what's going on for you right now that perhaps, what are you playing with now, whether that's campaigns or whether that's um, particular projects that you'd love to tell us about? Is there anything you'd like to invite people to be involved with in your work at the moment? So I set up MD Brunch a few years ago. um, And the idea is that vocal leaders are quite lonely people in in the reality of what our role is. Um, And so MD Brunch provides this space as do several other large singing organizations but i think that it it needs to be more than just 
uh, a training organization that sets up training events. It needs to have that space where people can come to belong, but really feel available to Skillshare, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, so I said I'm doing brunch up and right now we're amongst all these other singing organizations trying to get out there and get the nation singing. And I think the, the bit that's, um, the, the bit that's important to me right now is that people in all of all walks of active music making get out there and start to convince other people to start jumping into music now, because right now music is being a bit demonized right now. Um, this particular government is making moves towards cutting down educational funding, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that the collective arts need to get together and make a noise about this because we need to remind everybody that they absolutely are us. We are them. And we all do this together and there's no way we should. Anyway, so you get this and most people listening to this will get that. But um, so right now I would say the, the thing I really want people to do is keep an eye out for things that are coming in terms of information and opportunities to lend your voice to the argument that we need the arts to be better, uh, to be more securely set within the educational and cultural context of the UK, because um, we're at risk of, of things. Julia Donaldson was interviewed in The Guardian at the beginning of May. Julia Donaldson writes all these great kids' books. She is the most uh, well-sold British author currently, 27 million books or something in nine years. Amazing. And she she beats everybody else by massive margin. So Julia Donaldson has nine grandchildren, one of whom loves singing, loves singing. Quote in the article was that kid comes home from school, young kid, comes home from school parents are like oh so what did you sing today and the kid's response was singing spreads germs i was floored reading that i the level of 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 sadness and rage but sadness mostly just that my most precious thing could be so so immediately broken and for a child who has the potential in a whole life ahead of them to understand freedom for themselves and safeness. Anyway, so we, we all get it. Anybody listening to this probably gets this, but um, so we are in a place where the damage that is being done by the pandemic inadvertently to the constructs that are saying, well, maybe nobody should sing for a bit or we should be safe about it, which is now a fallacy because the science hasn't moved. The UK hasn't published new science. The person who was funded by Public Health England to do the science stood up just this week and said, what are we doing? We should get back to singing. It's totally fine. Um, the scientist funded by the government department who published their findings last July, that's July 2020. We're now May 2021. And the inference was, oh, the science has advised us to not do it. But there is no new science. Your science said it was fine. So sorry, come again. Um, so we all need to step up and make that message much more clear and demand the change on that and then be careful. So in terms of what I'm doing, it's not really what I'm doing right now. It's what we all need to do. And there's a, there's a much bigger set of noise we all need to make. And it's all musos need to get on this right now because otherwise we're, we're all going to be looking down a much, if we thought this last year was bad, we're setting up a future of much more difficult. Um, and, you know, anyway, and, you know, that's generations of people that we need to fix and help. And so if singing is all about well-being, which is what I hope the message of my random garblings and mumblings of today have been, then, you know, 
there are a lot of people that need a lot of help. So we need to get out there fast. One other quick, by the way, slightly, you know, detached corporate drop is for other things that I am working on right now. And in a funny way, it's about accessibility is the whole kind of, I started working last year for MTB, the music teachers board. And so all of us have done these music exams, the way that we validate ourselves, the way that we train ourselves, the way that we prove that we've done something. But because in the UK, in the cultural context of the UK, um, music education has taken on grades and grade exams as a as a as a anchor as a cornerstone of how we progress and, and show to the point that schools require a grade five to get in it you know a scholarship or even entry or consideration or whatever you know you need you need these all these validation points so i started working for mtb because they're the the fifth official off-qual regulated music exam board the new one so alongside the other ones that exist they are the now new one but the difference is they allow students to play whatever material they are they want. They can record their exam on any day of the year they want and submit it online. And an instrument specialist examiner comes back with results. Now, the reason that, you know, why am I, you know, shilling a, a kind of an exam product? Well, because I work with a prison choir. And one of the things that MTB has just launched is their performance exams, which means you walk onto camera, you perform a performance set a, a, a you know a recital call it whichever part of the world of music you come from and then you walk off the camera that's it, it's done and you're examined on yes your musicianship yes your technical skills but your stagecraft and your artistry but you're just examined on the whole thing um so just a camera walk on perform walk off okay great but because i can do it anywhere and i can do it with whatever repertoire i want so long as i send the material to them for free get them to assess the material and send it back for free um and say, so, yeah, that's appropriate for grade three, grade five, grade six, whatever. I can now go into prison on any day I want and get Johnny to just sing the songs we're doing anyway, which I've had quietly pre-vetted and I paid for the exam through the funding of the organization that we work with or whatever. And Johnny then gets a real certificate. And if we're talking about rehumanizing people or giving them value and, and, and a sense of self-worth, I can get these guys in prison UCAS points. Mm-hmm. So if they want to really consider a set of changes or a, you know, a next step in whatever they're doing, it might not be changes. I worked with one guy in prison who had two PhDs and was remarkably powerful in the city. Um, so it's not like he needed an education. He had enough UCAS points, thank you very much. But the point <laughs> being that um, you know, the value of the potential for so many more people to feel valued and, and, and validated that their music is good enough, that they are good at doing music that they can keep doing music and it's okay if they want to just be a fiddle player why the word just even came into my sentence is ridiculous isn't it but you don't have your grade eight in classical violin yeah but why would i why can't i just play this music over here and it'd be good enough Mm. that's what mtb brings to the table that's why i started working with them because it's so exciting to me there Mm. there's a real potential to change some of the very base level as we just said compressions suppressions that exist within music education, Mm. this is a phenomenal avenue to start doing that because equal certification weight, completely equal, off-call regulated. So so anyway, so the point being, um, there's my little little sales pitch. MTB, Music Teachers Board, check them out. This is wonderful to hear that you, you know, and what a way to, what an inspiring message to to share for the inclusive voice, you know, um, at the end of this episode to say, that yes, there are now uh, ways to perform. And I mean, I was thinking also, of course, of the internet, you know, that people, 
um, you know, like the sea shanty that just went viral. Um, you know, how how amazing that is that people can get on camera now because, you know, when when we're obviously privileged enough to have those kind of gadgets, but, you know, that people can be at home and have been making music and able to now have that that power and that to be validated on a mass scale uh, without having to pass through, as you say, certain hoops, certain gatekeepers, certain, you know, systems. Mm. So amazing, amazing. Thank you for sharing that. I'm going to really um, look into that because, uh, yeah, as you say, it validates people, allows people to measure their growth in a way that is inclusive. Um, Thank you. Thank you, Nav. And thank you for all you're doing. It's just, and thank you for being, just coming on and playing and making me put my nose and my hands all in the wrong place and and having fun with us today and being so inspirational in all that you're doing and so committed. Um, I'm just so, so honoured that you came to speak to us today. So thank you so much. It's brilliant and sharing all your wisdom. It's brilliant. You, we are, we are the same, Katie. You were doing all of this. You know, it's just a privilege to get to sit with a colleague and talk about it sometime. Um, so thank you for, you know, and for all the people you've had on the show, you know, they, they all are, 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 I like to use the term, you just use the term gatekeepers. They're all gatekeepers to this thing. Um, the Diverse Voices Project between Royal Opera House and National Opera Studio, trying to get more diversity into the world of opera. <laughs> okay. Um, so they, uh, one of the things was after all the roundtable conversations, when they got together, uh, finally in Birmingham to, for a conference day to discuss the outcomes and what they're going to do, they identified magic people. Everybody has in 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 our journey. We have this magic person, paid for our lessons, or dragged us two lessons, or you know played us our first amazing piece of music that blew our mind and made us go, oh my gosh, I want to become a musician, or you know they were the teacher that actually journeyed us forward in a bunch of ways. So we've all had this magic person, and the idea was that what we need to do is identify these magic people, and support them, engage them, give them avenues and tools help them so that they can reach more because they're obviously doing it for one they can do it for many so we need these magic people on side in order to build this funnel into diversity in opera but obviously in everything so um what i love about what you are is you are a magic person and that you've on this show had all these magic people come along and do so now i can put that in context you know because they're all doing it for all these people tom's an amazing workshop leader tom morley and um others and so you know i'm very pleased that you are doing this and i love the idea of vocal revolution i'm with you that's why i'm wearing the colors today yay i love it i love it i love it yeah it is it is that and that's what i wanted to do is to celebrate the magic people like yourself to celebrate their voice and celebrate your voice and because as you say it can be lonely it can be lonely and um also i know that the committed magic people that i know often even though they're very, they can seem, appear very visible and they are often very visible, as you say, but their voice and their insight, they're often in service to other people's voices. So it's, of course, and that's our service. That's our, that's what we've chosen to do. But it is nice to hear your voice and hear your insight, you know, for, for us. So thank you so much for sharing that. Thank you. It's been fun. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you very much to everyone who's tuned in today and listened today. Really appreciate it. Really appreciate your voice, your magic that you're bringing to the world. So please go out there and share it and get playful. And um, yeah, just just go forth and make noise. <laughs> thank you yeah. so much.